0: Guess what? If you fight for Black lives, you also get more free. So this isn't just about Black people. Yes, we are asking you to to put your attention on Black people, but recognize that our liberation is bound into one another. And so when Black people get free, we all get free. And that is, I think, the like, sort of like foundation
1: of Black Lives Matter. Hey everyone, welcome back to On Purpose, the number one health podcast in the world where we focus into all of the areas and themes that affect our mental, emotional, and physical health. And this includes everything that's happening in the world around us. Now, you know that I focus in on trying to speak to guests where we can all learn together as a community, as a family, as part of the On Purpose audience. And I'm so excited because today I get to sit down with an individual Not someone that I'm just curious and interested about, but someone that I believe that I have a lot to learn from and that I think we'll all get the benefit of from hearing deep answers to these questions that I know you've sent me and questions that I have myself. Now, I want you to be able to expand your mind today. I want us to train ourselves today to listen without judgment, allow us to stretch our minds without comparison or judgment and be able to listen to truly understand. Today's guest is none other than Patrice Cullors. She's an LA native and artist, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and Reform LA Jails. Cullors' worked for Black Lives Matter recently received recognition in Time Magazine's 2020 100 Women of the Year project. She's a best-selling author and a faculty director at Arizona's Prescott College of New Social and Environmental Arts Practice MFA program that she has developed. In 2019, she joined Freeform's Good Trouble season two and three as staff writer and actor. For the last 20 years, she's been one of the front lines of criminal justice reform. Today, we're here to learn more about her, her purpose, and how we can all improve the world we live in together. Patrice, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's gonna be fascinating today to dive into. I actually mentioned to a few of my friends who are doing some incredible work in this space that I was interviewing you today and they were excited for me and they were like, you're so <laughs> fortunate and lucky, so I want you to know that, that that's how I feel right now as well. Yeah. Uh, and really grateful to you and your team for taking out the time. I, I wanted to start off by getting, our community to understand more about you, you as a person, you as an artist, you and your background, because I think right. that often that's so missed in conversations and media pieces that are five minutes and quick yeah. interviews. And, and you have this rich history and background of your own. And, and I wanted to start off with this question because you earned an MFA from USC. Yes, I, I wanted you to tell us about how you keep your artists and creative side alive through what you do today. Thank you for asking about that. Um, I think a lot of people see my
0: activism and sort of relegate it to the world of politics. Uh, But I actually argue that my art and my activism are extensions of my political values. And so my art has been something that I have practiced since I was a young girl. I was an artist before I became politicized. And a few years ago, uh, a mentor of mine, Suzanne Lacy, actually brought me to art school. And she said, hey, I'm at USC. I think you'll um, really value getting an MFA. And I was like, no, I I did the BA thing. Wasn't even that excited about that. Like I really loved being a community organizer and an artist. Um, And she said, no, really like spend two years on your art. And I begrudgingly applied, but with curiosity. I mean, obviously I consented to applying, and I got in, and I didn't tell anybody in my family <laughs> for like for probably a month because I wanted to try it out. And if I didn't like it, I would leave. But the minute I entered my studio, so all of all the artists who got into the program get their own studio, I just started crying. And I was like, oh, I, I need this. I need my practice in this way. And so I got to spend two years um, in an expensive fellowship um really you know holding down my art practice and it changed me and I left the program really being reminded that art is at the center of all of what I do and art is how I both heal but also art is how I intervene in cultures of violence
1: Mm. yeah I think art has such an important role to play art was my my favorite subject growing up. And when I decided not to pursue it beyond the age of 18 in an academic sense, my teachers were really let down by me because I was such a sellout that I, I gave up. But, but I feel like my work today, that the artist never leaves you like that, that feeling never leaves you. And it, and it always finds a way to come back. And, and I wanted to ask you about that because you're obviously, you know, your past influence has affected your creation of your first solo show, which was yes. Respite, Reprieve, and Healing. Tell us about what you were processing through that piece and what of your past was kind of coming out. Sure, oh yeah, you really know this. Um. <laughs> we we, we
0: <laughs> I, 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 Like deep dive, I'm, yeah,
1: I'm I'm Yeah, you know, the, the podcast is called On Purpose because I'm so deeply into just trying to understand humans. And, and I think you're such a fascinating human. And, mm-hmm. and I think seeing you as through just one lens and one layer is, is kind of the mistake I think we make today as a society. We try and put people into boxes right. and we put people into bubbles and we're like, that's all you are, you can't be anything right. else. And so anyway, I'm trying my best. So thank you for encouraging me.
0: And, no, and I, I word love word. that. I have a lot of gratitude. I talk to a lot of people and a lot of people interview me and they're not interested in the multifaceted Patrice. So I, I'm like deeply appreciative of this moment. Um, sure. My my solo show uh, for my thesis pro- project was Respite, Reprieve, and Healing, An Evening of Cleansing. And um, my good friend and creative collaborator, Damon Turner, um, helped curate this piece. And when I was developing it, I was trying to think about like... I'm often thinking about the senses when I'm making work. I'm a performance artist and I do a lot of public art with my performance. So I was thinking about like, what did I want people to feel like while they were witnessing it? What did I want them to see? What did I want them to smell? What did I want them to hear? And this is important for me because I feel like for a long time, especially from like 2013 to 2016, a lot of my art was very, I was, I was processing my trauma around, um, you know, my work being so deeply steeped in Black death. And so, so much of my work was like a reprocessing of that trauma. And it was a, it was a really painful experience in my work and my practice. And so going through this art program, I got to really like deepen into that trauma, but also I think on the other side of it, I recognized that I obviously I've survived and so there's deep resilience there. And so I wanted my piece to look at resilience and look at the impact um, this movement and and Black death has had on my body, but also how I've actually been and how Black women at large are deeply resilient. And so I spent the first part of the piece in a hundred year old bathtub Um, of salt, of Epsom salt. And while that was happening, there were uh, 14 performers in white robes getting their hair washed in salt and honey. Um, And it was all Black performers. And um, at the end of that piece, they tied their hair up with a rope. And there was this one individual who was sort of like the sorcerer tying folks' hair up with a rope. And It was on, it was in a backyard of this home in South Central. And it was really beautiful because I wanted to, there's the imagery of rope and Black people is a very disturbing imagery traditionally and historically. But this was not that. Um, This was like um, these, you know, 14 Black folks coming together around their hair and then bounding themselves up um, uh, and with their heads like together as, as a unit, as a collective Um, And not because they were dying, but because they were alive. And so that felt really important to me. But while all this is happening, um, I had recorded audio of sort of me just thinking about things and like processing out loud. And um, then there was also uh, uh, a really beautiful team of uh, musicians who were playing. And uh, my good friend, Damon Davis, we used his song, Light Years, to sort of be the 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 score for the piece. So as you can tell, lots of things were happening all at once because that's how I process. Uh, it's how I do things. And um, by the time the that kind of first piece of the artist um, washing hair was done, I was pulling myself up out of the bathtub of salt. It was 400 pounds of salt, so super super heavy. Uh, <laughs> And I had this gorgeous dress made by um, my designers at Katula who make um, West African um, garb. And so I pulled myself up and there's just sort of this beautiful dress I had on. My hair was done by um, an artist named Nena Soulfly and it was these long kind of Medusa braids. And as I pulled myself out of the bathtub, I crawled to a trough of Coconut milk, um, and then plunged myself in that milk and washed myself. And so this was like a really cleansing moment. And there was probably about 300 people at the piece. It was in a backyard. So at every moment, like folks were sort of mo- being moved along. I really like processions. Um, I think like having people move with you in a piece and be a part of that piece. Um, is really important in my work. And then everybody, I requested everybody come and wear white. Um, And so by the end of the piece, um, I sort of walked over to where originally people were getting their hair washed and um, took the dress off and looked at the audience uh, and just like held space while the music was still playing the live music. And then walked off and that was the piece i don't think i've described that piece out loud in that way so that was actually really helpful for me i was like how do i make this visual
1: it's so many things happening at once i'm so glad you did that like that is such a beautiful description and i mean i was with you the whole way and it made me think that how amazing would it be if art was used in media more because that visual that you've just painted for me, and like you were saying, the redefining of how the rope is perceived. Yes. It, it's so incredible to think that actually through that art, you're just rewiring the narratives for people in their minds, which yeah. you can't do if you're not seeing it through art. It's so hard to do it literally sometimes. That's actually right. But, but the metaphors and everything. So, but I wish I was there live now. <laughs> so you, you're gonna have to figure out how to do this again. <laughs> but. It sounds so cleansing. And literally, like I get, when I was hearing it, it just felt so like, you know, there was so much cleansing. I'm sure the people that were there were just completely transformed and, and impacted by it. So thank you for describing that so beautifully. Usually it's hard to describe things in words. But, uh, but, but moving on from that, tell me if, if someone showed you a glimpse of the work you do today, who you are today. If someone showed you that glimpse at 10 years old. <laughs> like when you were 10, would you, is that what you saw for yourself? Or when you were 10 or whatever age you want to pick, what was your aspiration? Like what were your goals? What were your values? What were you seeing was your future growing up in Van Nuysen, you know, locally to where you are now, not far away from where we both live. Like sure. where, where, where did you see your future? It's a good
0: question. You know, I just finished um, recording the adapted version of my book into a ya Mm -hmm. and part of adapting it we decided that we're going to take um my journals from when i was a teenager and sort of go through them and put them in different parts of the book and i was pretty much the same (laughs) (laughs) i love that pretty much the same like there was a journal entry where i was like police do not transform or heal our communities like when I was 16 years old and so like I was already planting the seeds for my adult self and I think if someone were to say hey this is what you like hey 10 year old or 12 or 15 or 16 year old this is what you're going to be doing I probably would respond thank god like that's what I dreamed of like that's what I imagined I spent a lot of time as an adolescent like dreaming of Um, being able to change and help my community, not just like my family, my immediate family, but like wanting to make big changes. And I was, you know, I idolized people like Audre Lorde and Angela Davis and Huey P. Newton and so many of the Black power figures. Um, I really believed that I was, you know, my dad used to always tell me I was born in the wrong generation. Like, you missed it. There was a whole time when people did that, that you want to do, but that's not going to happen again. So, I think I would be like relieved, like, okay, good. Like I did the things that I wanted to happen. Like that feels resonant. And I, I just like chuckled as I read journal, like read my old journals. I was like, Oh my goodness, Patrice, you were so intense. Like, <laughs> as a kid, like so glad that I found this work in this world. And also like that I was found art so early because I was already such an intense child that needed like a, a, a kind of container to help me with all the big feelings I had. I had very big feelings. I noticed things. I, you know, I was like a very empathetic. And so art, and I think also activism and organizing really helped contain all of the big feelings I had about what was happening in the world.
1: Yeah, what I love about what you just said is like, when you think of art, you think of it as like very flowing and unorganized. And then you said that activism that needs to be organized. And I, I kind of love those two going together because it's sure. almost like, it's almost like the heart and head kind of getting into synergy. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the art allows you to be fully expressive, but then yes. in activism we can be more explaining and, you know, really helping people understand. So I, I love the way you brought those two things together. Right. I wonder whether, you know, you're, you're obviously a professor and you're teaching social justice and, I guess, how do you think that's changed from when you were learning and reflecting about that when you were younger, as we just talked about, and and how are you seeing people being educated on it today? Do you think Mm -hmm. there have been positive changes in that education space seeing as you've stepped in as well yourself? Uh, Was there a gap that you saw that you felt like, no, this needs to be addressed differently? Yes.
0: So the program I teach is actually a a master's in fine arts program. That is both a combination of social justice and art. I see. So it's, that's the gap. I mean, there, I'm not, my program isn't like the first of its, like the first program to do this. So I want to be really clear. There's lots of programs who have done this. Um, But what I was, what I tried to do in creating this program is think about, all the things that I didn't get when I was in art school. And so, you know, my program was amazing and I had a lot, I had an, a, a really positive experience, especially because my cohort was incredible. And from my cohort, you know, three of us, um, Alexander Doris and Noe Olivas and I all started an art gallery and studio in Inglewood. So like, we've, we kind of extended our experience and we're like, we're not done playing together. Like, let's go build this other thing. And through that, recognize that the world of academics in the art space and social justice space is often deeply lacking empathy and so our program is an online program for mostly working artists like working artists who just didn't get their degree and like need to go through a program and so we spend a lot of time on like the artist's practice and building up the empathy around their practice i feel like the training of artists is pretty sterilized like if you i'm so glad you didn't go to art school that would have been a terrible tragic experience because what usually happens in art school is they actually train you out of being an artist and um they really train you into being a vehicle of capitalism and a commodity and so while i don't have a problem necessarily with making your art a commodity some artists are really successful I think that should not be the only way you have to express your art. And so our program is really building out the empathy. And so we have a lot of healers who are also artists in our program. So we have a course that's specifically art as healing. Um, And I think it's super powerful, um, the work that we're trying to do. We have courses that are deeply rooted in environmental activism um, around art. And um, my, my work is to often intervene into what I think is um, a a space that isn't giving the full breadth of what can be given and then also create a new vehicle because we can intervene all day but if we're not creating the new vehicles or where people can change then people just end up um, just end up like you know shouting and not really changing so that this program the MFA program is Really, it's an experiment. We're experimenting. And what I love about the program and my students is that we have a cohort that's mostly students of color, which is also deeply rare in art programs. And it's our faculty is reflective of that. It's a mostly all people of color faculty. So I feel very grateful for this program and what it's providing, not just my students, but me and also the academic and art world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's all pretend to be your students right now or everyone (laughs) who's listening. And I want to ask you from that perspective, let's say someone's listening and they're like, Patrice J, you know, I, I get it. Like art is healing. It helps me express, but hey, I'm not really artistic. Like, I don't even know how to draw. Like, or so, you know, the, the, the hangups that people have or we forget our childlike self and we, we lose right. that ability to. So if someone's like, Patrice, I want to get in touch with my inner artist again. I want to be able to express myself through art or journaling. Where's a good place for someone to start? If they're just like, I, I need to just understand my emotions and feelings more like you were when you were a young person and seeing all of this happening. And I want to express myself through art, not to make a brand out of it or put it on Instagram, but just, you know, just for myself, where's a good place for someone to start? I love
0: that question. Um, I think, uh, the first place to start is to feel, feel your sensations, feel what's in your body, your hands, your feet, your legs, your stomach, your chest, your, your shoulders. Like part of growing up, I think in places like the West is, it divorces you from your feelings. It divorces you from your emotions. And so much of the place of art is comes from what you feel. It's an expression of what you feel. It's an extension of what you feel. And so I would, and, and to remind people who are listening is, um, numbness is also a feeling. Mm. We may not know that, we may not recognize that, but being numb is, is supporting something that, that needs to be supported in you. And so people who've dealt with a lot of trauma, we often go numb because the experiences, if we allowed ourselves to feel everything we felt, we'd probably be crushed, literally. So numbing is actually a feeling too. And so check out the places where you feel numb. Um, I'm a big fan of meditation. I'm a big fan of a practice called somatics. Um, which is like a, which part of it is they have centering practice where you just like take your time, whether you're sitting down or standing up and breathe into your stomach and slowly allow yourself to feel all of the feelings that you feel. And sometimes they're too big and too much and you don't have to feel them that big. You can feel them at 10% or 20%. And from there, you know, I'm, I don't, I, although I do write a lot, I like to record my voice a lot. so record a note in your phone or, you know, whatever, you know, on your computer and just like take the time to say out loud what you're feeling and where you're feeling it. And I promise you, if you do that for like 30 days, like even if it's a couple times a week, you'll start to notice patterns, you know? So I feel all my feelings in my throat, my chest and my stomach, literally happiness, um, sadness, fear, (laughs) Like that's like the place where I feel it. And it really helps to notice that because then I can be like, okay, right now I'm feeling these feelings like happiness. Oh, okay, great. Like I can express it in this way or I'm feeling sadness. I can express it in this way. And that to me is like a really good locator of how to show up for yourself first and then show up for the other things that you love to do like art.
1: What a rich answer. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's, that's going to be so useful to so many people listening because like, there's no, you haven't given anyone a format. Like, it's not like painting a picture. You don't have to have a skill to be able to do that. You just need to be still almost to just listen and hear. And, and, and actually, that's really so much at the heart of the message that I'm hearing right now for the world is the ability to just be still and listen and hear and observe. Both in ourselves and in others, because it feels like that's the ability that's been lost uh, in in me included and and in so many of us, the ability to just be still and actually just hear listen, understand, observe and not like judge and make a conclusion and and, draw up a plan. And I I think it's so fascinating to see how much so much of that mindset comes from being an, an artist in some sense. Yes, allowing ourselves to be there.
0: But my brother, um, his experience with law enforcement, and honestly, like my entire neighborhood's experience with law enforcement deeply impacted um, my worldview. Mm-hmm. And I think when you grow up as a child, and sort of like the people who are in government, <laughs> like in theory, they're supposed to be the people that protect you, take care of you, but they're doing the opposite. <laughs> like. It, they are not, not only are they neglecting, but they're, they're intentionally abusing um, your loved ones, your family, and everyone around you. I think that, that really shaped my, my, my worldview around like, okay, well, if these people who are being paid are not only not protecting me, but they're abusing and neglecting me, then who do we go to? Like, who is supporting us? Who is take caring, who's taking care of us? So with my brother's situation, you know, he was 19 when he was brutally beaten by the sheriff's department. And that experience, it's, it's interesting because, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you know, children have like a different understanding of time and like memory. So when my brother experienced his, his beating by the sheriffs in the county jails, I didn't necessarily know that that's what happened. I just knew it in my spirit, like something, I knew that he was taken away, I knew something really bad had happened, and my mother hadn't shared it with us, she didn't share it with her children, the only people, the only person that ever knew what happened with my brother until we all found out was my my grandmother, her mother. But it would it would take almost a decade until I knew the details of what happened to him, and I realized it a decade later when I came across the ACLU um, American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California, um, their complaint against the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And that complaint basically was 70 sworn testimony um, of prisoners inside of the county jail that shared their story of essentially not just being abused but tortured by the Sheriff's Department. Things like people's um, front teeth being knocked out, um, their skulls being um, shattered, um, being carved into their bodies, like words. Um, and what I re- realized while I was reading that, while it was deeply disturbing to read, I was like, oh, this is what happened to my brother. I didn't, no one ever told me those words, but I knew it. I was like, this is what happened to him. And so he had just been released from prison. Um, and, and when I read that complaint and I called him and my mom and I said, finally, the sheriffs are being sued. And they said, um, my brother said to me, at least someone will get justice. And it was like, that was like the moment when I was like, Oh, okay. Like that did happen to him. And so we went through a whole process and I actually created an entire performance piece around that 86 page complaint. Um, and that piece is what then um, was the inspiration for my local organization called Dignity and Power Now, which has successfully created civilian oversight of that sheriff's department and has been a huge watchdog around the abuse of that uh, department and also successfully stopped uh, a, um, two $3.5 billion jails that were going to be built in Los Angeles County. So my brother's story and the, the impact it had on me and my family definitely transformed how not only how i understood the state's relationship to black people in particular but also my role in fighting it back and being like you mess with the wrong family you don't get to do that and not be held accountable and even though it took me a decade plus to receive that kind of accountability i still fought and fought and fought and i stayed present for that fight and I didn't do it alone. Hundreds, and I would argue now thousands of people joined us in holding the sheriff's department accountable and continues to.
1: Mm. Well, thank, you. thank you for sharing that. What, what, gave you the, what gave you the courage to, you said there, mentioned, you mentioned it many times, like to fight and you continue to be present in that fight. Like, what even gave you the belief? Because I feel like for a lot of people right now who may want to see change or they agree that things need to change, but then they get discouraged at the first hurdle. They get discouraged at the first change, you know? And, and obviously you've been, you've been fighting for this for a long time and you're not stopping and you're finding new ways and you've turned art into activism in a powerful way. Like what has constantly given you the belief and the courage because for most of us, and you made this point earlier too, sorry, I, I know I'm connecting dots of what you yeah. said, but you know, for so many of us, it's like, we, we just care about our family just about, and then kind of we'll see what happens with the rest of the world. And you know, you said at an early stage, you realize it wasn't just about your family, it was about the community. And then of course, with your brother having this experience and then you're like, okay, well, how does this stretch beyond just him and now beyond to the world? What is it that gives you the belief and courage, A, to extend yourself that something will change and B, that you want to care for more than just the people right around you, just your community? Because that's where it started with this group you're saying, but now it's extended.
0: I think love. Mm-hmm. Um, a deep and profound love for my family and my community. My brother was my first best friend, literally. Um, we would sit in um, our room when I was a kid, I remember be, I talked a lot as a child. I still talk a lot, but <laughs> I was a very like precocious. Like I talked a lot, very curious. <clears throat> my mom says that I would sit in the, in the car seat when I was first learning how to read and we would, she'd be driving and I would tap my brother and ask him, what does that sign say? What does that sign say? Like I really was curious. So he was the brother that like just like would hang out with me, and like listen to me and um, and just, you know, my other brother, he's like much older than me. Um, so I think I was probably a little like annoying. He really loved me and he took care of me. He was like a, a deep caregiver, but Monty was like my friend. And so I spent a lot of time with him. And so as we got older and I started to see what was happening to him and how he was being responded to, I my love for him was really, big and it made me want to keep fighting and I also felt like my brother is my brother suffers from schizoaffective disorder so he has severe mental illness and I felt like the odds were against him and so there's this whole apparatus that's like three point billion dollar institution that doesn't want to support him and instead is like criminalizing him well the least I can do is be his advocate and being his advocate meant also being the advocate of many like him
1: Yeah, that extension of it is what's uh, so much what you said driven by love. Yeah, Uh, because when you're when you're going above and beyond, you know, your family and the people around you that you grow up with, and even your community where it started out and it keeps extending, you can see that that's really, really driven by love. And you know, I think I think for a lot of people, even even for me, for many many years, and you know. I think it was hard to understand the difference in what you experience. So being of being a person of color from London uh, and experiencing racism, growing up with my parents who are my mother's from Yemen and my father's from India. Mm. And then, and then also experiencing racism myself, you, you kind of, even in my own ignorance, you kind of just bucket up the racism you experience. To feel like that must be the race that kind of everyone goes through, if that sure. makes sense. Yeah. Kind of just put this blanket over, and it's again this human mind that just wants to like bucket stuff off and be like, oh, they're probably going through the same thing that I'm going through. Sure. And then, and then very, you know, more recently having a very intimate conversation with myself hmm. and being like, oh no, this is different. It is a different thing that's happening here, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a different experience. There is a different situation. There is, there is far more structural impact here than, yes. that the community is facing, not, not what I faced, which, was, which is different to that. And, and I think, you know, so many people have struggled and you probably asked this question a million times, but I, I feel I've got my head around it slowly, but I, I want people to really cement it and for me too. And I want you to take a moment to just share what Black Lives Matter means to you and what it actually means as opposed to the challenge that people constantly have with it, with the all lives or the yeah. blue lives or the, because I, even though it's, it seems so simple now, when you're kind of on the other side, it feels so simple, but it's so easy to not understand it. So that would be really useful.
0: Yes. Um, you know, the, the, the Black Lives Matter and, and so many words is a, as a project. Um, it's an experiment to challenge white supremacy. <laughs> We created Black Lives Matter as a response to a deep pain and trauma that our collective community felt, which was Trayvon Martin was a 17-year-old boy who was killed by a grown white passing man in Sanford, Florida. And many of us believed, because we all knew that George Zimmerman killed him, that there was gonna be some form of justice. And he did not, um, there was no justice. Uh, And there still has been no justice for Trayvon Martin. And so when we witnessed that trial, that pretty much year-long trial, where very quickly we understood that Trayvon Martin was on trial for his own mor- murder, and then we sat, in a, and, and not physically, but we sat and watched, you know, whether, whether it was on TV or on our social media, the, the jury come back and say, "Not guilty." And um, that final not guilty. I think was like a collective slug to everybody's chest, right? To Black people in particular. And that was our Emmett Till moment. It was our moment where we realized, oh, um, not much has changed when it comes to white supremacy, institutionalized white supremacy. And this child was um, stolen from us. And the parents... um, have to deal with that forever and also have to deal with a system that doesn't care that he was stolen from us. So what do we do? And what is the collective response? It's not, it wasn't just on Sabrina Fulton to respond. Um, it was on all of us to respond collectively. And so Black Lives Matter, it becomes a collective response to collective trauma. And um, and then it also, um, becomes a reminder of what's possible. So Black Lives Matter becomes a space where we get to decide what's possible for us on our own terms. And that's the power of Black Lives Matter. We always cr- we created it because we wanted it to be nimble. Um, we wanted it to be able to take the shape it needed to take and whatever moment it needed to take it. And so first it was a hashtag. We took that hashtag into the streets during protests and then quickly it became and organizing infrastructure. And so we can't, it's not just about protesting. How do we make, build a longevity? And so we're seven years old, July 13th. Mm-hmm. And that is because we have stayed the course. Uh, black Lives Matter has turned into a global network with chapters across the globe here in the U- U.S., Canada, and the United Kingdom. And so, so much of our work has been about how do we meet Black people who are at in the moment then how do we build off of um, the imagination, the collective imagination? And then while we're building this thing for Black people, how do we call in our allies and say, hey, guess what? If you fight for Black lives, you also get more free. So this isn't just about Black people. Yes, we are asking you to, to put your attention on Black people, but recognize that our liberation is bound into one another. And so when black people get free, we all get free. And that is, I think the like, sort of like foundation of Black Lives Matter.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really well explained. And I think that's something that, hopefully everyone listening can, can identify with and, and mm-hmm. resonate with and, and understand where that sits. T- tell me about some of the most, because I guess people often may ask the opposite. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm interested in this. It's like, what are some of the most hope giving, conversations and moments that you've had in the last seven years hopefully in the last 12 months mm-hmm. hopefully recently what are the are there any and if there are on that's you can be honest too but what are the most hope-giving conversations that you've had within the black community and yeah. it, outside of it that has made you feel that people are getting it and that people are going in the right direction
0: yeah i just i just went on a social distance retreat for, that sounds
1: fun. I want to be one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, with uh, a company called Trap Heels, creative agency called Trap Heels. And that was, it was powerful. It was um, this really amazing opportunity to do work, but in a way that is like deeply rejuvenating and restorative. And so there was like a um, healer on site who was just like holding space in whatever ways you needed it and we like had all the crystals and the sage and like the people who had the amazing vibes and we just like held space um, held a lot of space and that I don't get to work like that often actually Um, so that retreat that social distance retreat was so healing and so powerful and we spent a lot of time talking about healing Mm -hmm. and um the the power of of meditation and yoga and sound bowls and Yeah. yeah and just like really taking that time to be connected be connected with self with each other with the land um it was it was really powerful it was exactly what I needed and I felt like I didn't get to do the work that I said I was going going to do (laughs) (laughs) but it was the
1: work that I needed to do what I'm what I'm fascinated by hearing from you today Patrice is like this There, there just sounds like there's so much internal work happening at the same time as the external works happening and that that is Something that I wasn't not not that I didn't think you were doing it, but I'm not so aware of. Yeah. And and I love hearing that because I think sometimes people are just like, Well, someone's you just gotta go out there and do something. That's what tomorrow. Sorry, say that again? That's what most people do. They just go out
0: there and do things. Do like things like they're just yeah. like in it and like
1: like a machine. That's how
0: we're trained. That's what we're trained to do.
1: Yeah, but it, but it seems like what what is that healing doing to make the activism is it making the activism more purposeful intentional what is it doing to that part because i think people forget that they're connected and and the way you're living sounds very interconnected and synergized what is that doing for the activism and for the changes that need to happen for you doing these uh whether it's meditation or spirituality or any of these experiences for you in healing as you said
0: I don't know. I think only time will tell, like I do it not for the activism, I do it for myself and my family and I have a four year old. And so um, healing work has always been at the center of my work. Um, it's, it's a big part of how I am able to survive um, is by by doing that, that inner healing work. Um, but it's also about like quality of life. Um, the work that I do is heavy. It's intense. It's, um, I get a lot of intense sort of like needs and inquiries from people. And so Mm -hmm. I, I I really was called to healing work in my early twenties because I recognize, oh, I'm, I'm being, I'm on this path and it's not sustainable if I don't have, uh, a sense of like grounded healing. So I'm always striving for that. Like I've done all the things, acupuncture, Reiki, like, that's just how I've always been. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I've had access um, to be able to, I live in California. So I feel like Californians, especially LA, like we discovered kale before the rest of the country. You know what I mean? So like, in some ways, whenever I go do talks in like the deep South and Midwest, I'm always like, I'm, I'm going to start talking about crystals, everybody. And, but that's just, that has been, it's who I am. Like it just really deeply is who I am. I've always been like this. I have an altar to my ancestors. Like it just is my ground and it's it, it gives me a kind of purpose of self because it's very easy to look outward and to think that your purpose is outside of you and it isn't, it really is inside of you and it directs what you do outside of you. But if we... Only focus on what's outside of us like we really do become shells and there's times in my life where i only focused on what's outside of me and it was deeply detrimental to my physical emotional mental health
1: yeah thank you for sharing that And i don't know if your team shared with me but i, I lived as a monk for three years i know and i studied i looked you up <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so meditation and spirituality is a, is a huge huge part of my life so hearing that in yours is is, is a beautiful thing we share and uh, I hope we get to uh, create some sacred space together at some point. I know. Point. I'm I, like, I
0: think it. we're going to be friends.
1: <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I, I, do, I don't know if you've ever experienced Kirtan, but it's it's the collective chanting with mm. um, sacred sounds, and uh, it's it's really, really special. I have a friend that comes over from London every year, and we hold these events in my home mm. uh, with a lot of friends. So, yeah, I, yes, I, was, <laughs> I love it. I love your energy already, but no, I... I for me, it's beautiful to hear it because I think and I loved what you said that, that you just do it for yourself. Like, you know, you, you do it for your children, your child, your your family. I think those are such beautiful ways of seeing it. And I guess I think a lot of people right now, and, and it's kind of like that, like a lot of us have struggled to make the right decisions for ourselves, but we at least aspire to make the right decisions for future generations. That's exactly right. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people right now are seeing that and they're saying, well, you know, maybe if it was me and my, you know, I would have let it go, but i my kids are growing up in this world and, and this is not working. What are, what are some of the things that before we, before we find out on that, on the ally piece, before we get into that, what are some of the things that people can genuinely do to not just be activated around moments uh, that we've seen in the world whether obviously it's brianna taylor it's george floyd like these horrific murders and and you know tragedies how is it so that you're not activated around them but that it continues what is needed because i think that that's a message that i keep hearing and you can correct me if i'm wrong but it's it's how is it how is this sustained in a real way that brings about real change so that everyone's children can grow up in a in a world without any racial injustice?
0: I mean, I think, you know, what I try to tell people is find an organization and commit to it. Um, And I say that because the only way that we fight institutional racism is if we're fighting institutions that are fighting institutional racism. Mm. You can't do it alone. Um, As I got older, I realized I had so much inside of me I needed organization, I needed to to have a container to figure out, okay, I want to take on everything, I can't. What do I feel most moved by? What bothers me the most? What keeps me up at night? All right, let me do that work. And that was really critical for me as a young person. And I started organizing at 16 years old. You know, I had my, I did my first petition against my school administration. And, and then I realized, Ooh, I liked that feeling. I like having agency. I like being able to be like, you did something wrong to me and I'm not just going to yell in your face. I want to actually organize lots of people around this to make sure it changes. So this doesn't happen to me again. It doesn't happen to other people. And that's what so many collectives, organizations are doing. I also tell people, if you feel moved by something and it doesn't exist, create it, start it um that's important too like lots of organizations exist started because they didn't exist um that infrastructure didn't exist so that's super important
1: mm. yeah i think i think that's a great reminder and yeah i often say to people like you may not find your purpose through your passion but you find it through your pain yes and, and for a lot of people that's where it stems from is that they find something really painful that they went through or that they see people going through and they want to go and serve that and make a difference. But I, I love how you keep, keep bringing it back to just, you know, having to having to take personal responsibility mm-hmm. uh, for what we see, which which is such a strong message. I know we only have five minutes left. I have like a million more questions I can ask you. So we may have to do a part two at some point. But <laughs> what I, what I want to do is we, we end every episode of On Purpose with two segments. One's called fill in the blanks and you're an artist. So I think you'll like this. Uh, and then the final five. So the fill in the blanks is I read out sentences and you fill in the blank at the end. Okay, great. It's kind of like your journal. So we get to, we get a little dive into what your journal may look like. Okay, so fill in the blanks. This is the first one. Freedom for all is?
0: Oh, uh, freedom for all
1: is... Liberation. Okay, true equality starts with? Fighting for black lives. Being brave means? showing up for yourself first. Absolute kindness is not.
0: Absolute kindness is not. That's such a strange sentence. Yeah, it's
1: a hard one, yeah. You can change it, you can edit the sentence if you don't like it. No,
0: I'm gonna try this. Well, the first thing that came to my head was passive aggressive.
1: Yeah, I I think that's good. (laughs) I think that's good, I like it, I like it. I wish everyone would smile smile ah, and I love really that. on each other <laughs> i love that okay these are your final five so these are with you i may, may go but we've got a few minutes so we can go into it usually they're one word or one sentence answers yeah. but okay <laughs> what do you believe most people misunderstand about activism
0: oh um
1: that it's only protest mm, okay let's let's expand tell me more what what else is it People think that um,
0: activism is like when you go show up to a protest or there is a protest and that's it like that, that it's like, and that's like zero to 100. There's all the, there's all this in between from like saying that you wanna become an activist and 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 really an organizer and then the protest. The protest is actually the last thing you do. Protest usually happens when you've tried everything else. When you try to talk to your elected official, when you sent them a letter, when you organize everybody, to to show up to the board meeting when you've um, you know p- made your public comment where you've you know you pressured them through other people, the protest is basically when every elected official or appointed official has ignored your demands. Protest is the, nec- the the final step to be like, all right, I've tried everything, now I'm showing up. So activism isn't just protest.
1: Wow, that is such a profound answer. Thank you so much for for expanding on that. All right, number two. See, I knew I was going to go off tangent with you. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Uh, question number two for you. What question do you ask yourself the most? Or what's a question you reflect on yourself the most?
0: Um, I usually wake up thinking, what am I doing today so I can change the material conditions for black people?
1: Wow. Beautiful question. Thank you. So, so led by purpose, that question. That's amazing. Okay, that was two. Question number three. If you could create a law that everyone in the world had to follow, what would it be? Um, If
0: I could create a law, I think it would be that there would be a community block party every once a month. So everybody would come out on their block. They would bring food. Like it would be like um, mandated, no one would get in trouble if they didn't do it though, so it would be a, a loose law. I don't believe in criminalizing. So the, <laughs> the law would be, you know, really, really to create a culture around like everybody having like a block party once a month and like everybody's like home on the block would be open. If you live in an apartment, all your, do- the doors would be open and people would just like love and have food and hang out and talk philosophy and art and, and how we're going to change the world together.
1: Wow, I want, to live on, I want to live on that block. That's, that's a great okay, cool. Uh, they never had that answer before. It's a brilliant answer, by the way. No one has ever said anything close to that. Uh, question number four and five. So question number four, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned in the last 12 months? Oh, um,
0: that you can plan as much as you want, but there is always a bigger plan. Beautiful.
1: Okay, and fifth and final question. I think this is incredible, but can you please share the importance of the date February 2nd, 2020? Is that when COVID happened? No, no, no. <laughs> it's the LA City Council declared it as. At- <laughs> <laughs> it's the trees color is day. Yeah. I forgot that quickly. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's the best. I I'm like, it. wait, what happened? COVID? <laughs> it <wasn't>, you you <laughs> took it like a trivia question. You thought it was like, you know, like a historical trivia question. It wasn't. It was about you. I there love was, that you all know that. <laughs> There's no trick questions in, in my <laughs> interviews. Everything from Yeah. Tell us
0: about the significance of that. I mean, like, what, what does that I mean, mean? I had no idea that was going to happen. I like showed up to an event that, that my local chapter put on for me and a uh, council member, Herb Wesson, And the city council declared that February 2nd, 2020 is Patrice Color's Day.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Patrice. Thank you so much. Everyone who's been listening or watching, I hope today you got a deep dive into Patrice Colors, the person, the human, the the energy, the presence, because I did. I I (laughs) definitely feel I got to know you so much better today. And I appreciate you being so open and vulnerable and letting us go in this completely different direction. And, you know, I'm really... yeah really appreciate that patrice thank you for for going on this journey with us and and yeah i think i think we're going to be friends so i'm i'm excited to, uh once we can all see each other again i want i want to come to one of your block parties <laughs> and, and i'm going to invite you to the the kirtans at our place uh for mm-hmm. some spiritual healing but but yeah thank you for doing what you're doing thank you for uh being a messenger and an artist and uh and an activist too and just sharing so many elevated insights around activism with us. I think that's what you've done. You've, you've, you've really, for a lot of us, at least, at least me especially, rewired my thought processes on what true activism is. So thank you for doing that.
0: Thank you so much. I really
1: appreciate thank- it. You-